Good morning. Today I will be reading from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That's 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and to testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, the one who is before all time, the one who sent your Son to enter time and space so that we could know you. Lord, we exalt your name this morning and we thank you. Father, we thank you for your word and that you've revealed not only the word, that is your son, but also the living word of scripture, Lord, that uh, lets us know how much you love us and how we are to relate to you and to the, the means of, of having even intimacy with you. And Father, as we go to the text today, a powerful passage just guide us, Lord. Thank you that your word does not come back void. And so we pray this morning that our time together, Lord, that our hearts would be encouraged, exhorted, as we are molded and shaped further into the image of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. As you do, I hope you were able to join us for the luncheon last week, and I, I gave a shout out last week, but I want to do it again. I want to thank Hayuk. Where are you, Hayuk? I know you're here. Thank you to you and your team. Yes. If you served on that, there are, we had 35, I think it was, or 25 volunteers. If you served, would you just stand? We just want to thank you. It was a great lunch last week. Thank you very much. Yes. Yay. We had 450 plates, we ran out of plates. So there you are, that was great. I was eating with my fingers, but I loved it. So, no, thank you very much. And to all those that are working on the center, uh, we have a whole team that has been working. In fact, they're working this afternoon, painting and carpeting and pulling up carpeting and all of that. I just wanna thank you as well to each one of you that's doing that. We'll further honor you. It is such a great thing to be a part of a ministry that's seeking to love God and love others well. And so mark your calendars next week for the business meeting. I think we have about 20 uh, candidates for membership that we're voting in, and just God is on the move. There's just exciting things that are happening. Well, I, I don't know uh, when the last time you've sit down and handwritten a letter to someone, it probably doesn't surprise you that a recent report, 37% of Americans have not written a personal letter in over five years. 15% have never written a letter to anyone. Emails, texts, they kind of 
come to the, the forefront, don't they? Uh, and letter writing has is, is become a bit of a, a, a lost art in the 21st century. In the Roman Empire, letter writing was very popular. It might surprise you, the, the, the Roman postal service in the first century could deliver a letter 500 miles in 24 hours. Our postal service may need to take some notes. Yes, <clears throat> and we won't go there. We get the wrong mail, I think, once a, month, a week. But anyway, 24 hours and, and 500 hours, God's timing, isn't it? Uh, they talk about the period between the old and the new is, is the, the silent era or the, that intertestament period. And God is not silent. He was orchestrating the events so that when we got to the first century, Paul could pen a letter to the church at Rome and it could be then circulated around the Roman Empire in no time in a language they all understood, Koine Greek. And so it shouldn't surprise us that several of the writings in the New Testament, several of the 27 books, are letters. And one of those letters is 1 John. And we've been looking at the life of David. And this morning, we're going to journey into 1 John, the essentials of genuine faith is the title of this series. These first four verses called the prologue set the scene for the whole letter. And you say, well, David, it doesn't read like an ancient letter because in Paul's writings, it's Paul to the church at, I don't know, Rome greetings. You, you have this format. You don't have that here with this. And some of some scholars have argued this is a sermon. I still think it's a letter that's being circulated. And the question, well, what we're going to observe here in these first four verses today is who is the author of our, our letter? We're going to talk about that. Who's the audience and why is our author pinning this letter to a group of believers? I gave you one clue already. Look what he says. This is what we proclaim to you. Already, there seems to be an understanding of who they are. In fact, you look at chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, my little children. That phrase occurs seven times in this letter, which tells us what about the author and his readership. They're, they're, they, they have a close relationship. He refers to them as my dear friends seven times. So there's an intimacy here that you don't see in some of the other writings of New, uh, New Testament writings. We also know, based on verses one through four that Julie just read, that they are believers. These are people who, who proclaim to know Jesus as their savior. Well, who is the we? And here I, I think the author, because later he'll refer to himself in the singular, uh, here he's referring to himself as plural because he's tying it back to the rest of the apostles. And I'm gonna lean with the rest of uh, evangelical scholarship as well as early church fathers that our author is John the Apostle. This is the same fellow who wrote the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He wrote that Gospel. He will write these three letters and he will write the book of Revelation. And so we have several letters and books penned by him and I would argue he's the author. Why would I think that? Let me just give you a few things. Uh, just bear with us. It's, I think it's important we understand this background because we're going to tie it in even today as we look at these first four verses. The, if you look at John's writing, <clears throat> the style of the Greek is very simple. 
to my first year Greek students, by the end, they were translating portions in one year of 1 John. It was great. You got them in the text. They could see the application of the language. But it's very simple, uh, 1 John, in many ways. It resembles the Gospel of John. The style is very similar. Uh, secondly, there's phrases and expressions that you see in the Gospel of John, which we say is the author is John the Apostle, and this letter, uh, phrases such as love the Father, the conditions of discipleship, all of this we're going to see as we journey through. Clearly, in these first four verses, our author is an eyewitness, right? He says, I, we saw this Jesus so this isn't second generation. This is someone who was right there in Palestine when it occurred. Fourth, fifth, the authoritative manner and assertions of the author. To refer to him as my dear children indicates he sees himself in a fatherly role. And we know that John will go to Asia Minor, modern Turkey, and he will minister to the churches in that region, in Ephesus. In fact, you can go to Ephesus today, and I believe it is his burial spot there in the church, which is pretty amazing, uh, where he is buried. He died in Ephesus, and he ministered to those churches in that region, and that, I believe, is the recipients. These are the readers. These are the ones who live in this region who claim to know Christ. The author is advanced in years. Again, I think that's very clear. And as we will see time and time again in this letter, our author has an intimate relationship with Christ. He knew him well. And how does John refer to himself in his gospel? I am the beloved disciple. Not, that wasn't arrogant. What he's saying is, I have such an awe of God's love for me that it, that it stems from it. So our author, it's assumed we, don't, we can't, piece it together other than uh, on this side of the telephone conversation, but it appears to be John the author. The recipients are believers in that region, and now we're going to look at several of the purposes as we tease this out of the first four verses. So let's look at the text. It says, this is what we proclaim to you, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen, what we've looked at, what our hands have touched. The English translation here has given us the verb proclaim. It actually does not occur in the Greek until verse 3. It's one long sentence. And what John is doing is he highlights all these relative clauses, what we have seen, what we have touched, da-da-da-da-da, we proclaim. He's emphasizing the, the nature of the message that he is delivering. It's important. Notice what he says about this proclamation. It's from, it stems from content that was from the beginning. Sound familiar? In the beginning, God. Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1, 1. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. We're going to come back to that text. We heard it earlier in the worship service. In John 1, in Genesis 1, we're referring to the beginning of time. Beginning of creation. I believe here in 1 John 1, we're talking about the beginning of Jesus' life here on earth. And he's gonna, I, I, I'm going to argue that based on a couple things. One is, he doesn't say in the beginning. In the Greek, it's clear. It's from the beginning. From the time that we made this message that we can deliver to you, it stems from Christ's life. That's going to be vital because it leads to the next several relative clauses, what, was, what we have heard, what we've seen, what we've looked at, what we've touched. 
John, what he's saying is, what we, we announced to you, <clears throat> this wasn't something I learned at seminary. This wasn't a textbook that I had read. No, no, no. This is very personal, John says. I, I was there with him. I had the privilege of studying with Otto Betts at Tubingen. He was in his late 80s when I had the year with him, and Betts was amazing. He was translating the Talmud, which is 30-some volumes, from Aramaic to Greek for fun at 80-some years of age. He, was, he loved the Lord. He was dynamite. He was saved as a prisoner of war in World War II. But because of his longevity and his experience in New Testament scholarship, I mean, he knew Rudolf Boltma. He knew all these names. And he'd say, well, yes, we had a discussion about that very thing. He didn't have to tell me what Boltmann wrote. He, he talked to Boltmann. He talked to these people about their, their views and their philosophy. It was so rich. And that's what John's doing for us. <laughs> I didn't learn about this. I was there. This is our author. John, John was, remember, he was there on the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. He was there when Jesus cast the demons into the pigs. He was there when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there at the foot of the cross when <clears throat> they crucified his Savior. And he was there at the empty tomb. That's our John. And John says, trust me when I tell you what I'm proclaiming to you, I understand I've heard it, I've seen it, and I've touched it, which also tells us of Jesus' humanity. One of the reasons John is penning this letter, and again, we're kind of, it's, it's, it's like listening to a phone conversation and piecing it together because we only get one side. But what we do know from reading 1 John is there is an attack on Jesus becoming flesh. That is Jesus becoming human. They had no problem saying Jesus is God, but they did not want to make him into humanity. And later John will write in chapter four, verse two, by this you know the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses Jesus as the Christ who's come into the flesh is from God. Every spirit that refuses to confess that Jesus the spirit is not from God and that this is the spirit, this spirit is the, the antichrist. Jesus was a real human being. He's just not a divine spirit, a ghost that appeared. The divine life was revealed in a visible and a tangible way. And there's a 50 cent word we use in theological circles. It's called the incarnation. Jesus taking on flesh. It's not, Jesus is fully divine. He didn't give up any of his deity or he's no longer God when he came to earth but he's also fully human, body, soul, and spirit. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology writes, Jesus lives forever, not just as the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but also as Jesus, the man who was born of Mary and as Christ, the Messiah and the savior of his people. Jesus will remain, listen to this, fully God and fully man, yet one person forever. And John wants to make this very clear because in, by the second century, this becomes a real issue for the church. Why? Why is that so important? <laughs> well, think about the ramifications. If Jesus isn't fully human, we got a real problem when it comes to the atonement, the sacrificial death that Christ did on our behalf. He has to be fully human. We, we have a problem with the bodily resurrection, right? 
the victory over death that comes because Jesus is fully human and he came out of that grave. It's vital. One of the grave dangers throughout the last several centuries is redefining who Jesus is. You tamper with his deity, you tamper with his humanity, we got a real problem, real serious problem. And I grant you, in our circles, in the evangelical world, there's, there's probably no one that's going to deny the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ. I was thinking about this. We can strip his deity. We can, we can diminish it. What do I mean by that? Think about his deity for a minute. Utilizing his name as a cuss word. I'm shocked at the number of Christians who say, oh my G-O-D, or oh my Jesus. I'm like, are you praying? This, this, stop right now, are you going to have a prayer service? What are you doing? You, you are not to use the Lord's name in vain. It shows he is God. This is a name you just don't flippantly throw out. You want to throw out a name, throw out Buddha, but don't throw out Christ. He's my savior. Failing to live as if Jesus truly is Lord is tampering with his deity. Turning to Jesus when things are really bad, but when we live life for the rest of the time, we don't turn to him. Is he really Lord? So on a practical level, as believers, we can tamper, we can play a little bit with his deity. We also can do it with his humanity. When we face temptations, we can fail to turn to our sympathetic high priest. What does Hebrews 4 says? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. We do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weakness, but one who's been tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. If he did not become human, fully human, he could not do that. <laughs> and that's glorious. Because we serve a Savior who's not only fully God, but fully man, who understands. And so Jesus knows he was tempted yet without sin, and thus the text tells us he's there to assist us if we know Christ as our Savior. We minimize God, who, well, he doesn't understand my struggles, or he doesn't understand these things. Oh, careful, you're, you're poo-pooing his humanity, because he does know. He was betrayed. <laughs> he was thirsty. He, he, he knows all these things, and he's there to help. So this is vital, and it's important for the church, and it's plaguing the church, really, in the, the latter part of the first century, going into the second century. And John sees that. He sees it on the horizon. He says, no, 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 no. We saw him. We touched him. We heard him. It's interesting, Jesus uses the perfect tense. It's, in the Greek, it, it's clear. What it tells us is the event happened in the past. He heard it, he saw it, but it has ongoing effect. It's the same verb used tense of uh, when Jesus said it is finished at the cross. It happened then, but it has ongoing effect. It does not end. So John says, I've proclaimed these things to you. And notice, he then gives a clause there at the end of verse 1, concerning the word of life. The message from God takes concrete form in Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus is not only the, the preacher, he, he is the message. That's why later Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ. 
It echoes John's gospel, doesn't it? Think about the opening to John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. The Word was with God in the beginning. All things were created in him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that had not been created. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. I mean, think about this. Before the created order, the Word existed. In fact, what it not only separates creation from the Word, then that the Word is not created, but the Word is part of the Creator. He's the source of the creation. We see that time and time again in Scripture. In fact, Genesis 1 later is seen by the Jewish writings. It says, Word is the creative self-expression of God by which the cosmos was made. And so, John's, we proclaim this to you, this message concerning the Word. And you got to go back again to John 1 to tease this out, that it is, we have a Word that existed before creation, Secondly, he says in John 1, the word was with God. It's not talking about proximity. It's talking about intimacy. They were together. (laughs) The fellowship they have, and by the way, he highlights that there in verse 3. Indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son. There is intimacy in the Godhead, which we'll get to in a minute because it's so profound here in the text. Not only in John 1 does it tell us In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was, and the best way to render this is fully God. You cannot translate this a God. It doesn't fit with the grammar, grammatical construction. You could translate it as the God, but that doesn't quite fit either with grammatical construction. A much much better rendering is that the Word was fully God. And what John is doing is keeping them distinct, yet ontologically the same. He's maintaining the Trinity. (laughs) The Father and the Son are equal, yet distinct. He's fully God, is a better rendering. And then finally, later in 1.14 of, of John's Gospel, it says, the Word became flesh and took up residence. Literally, he sets up a tent among us. That, by the way, John 1.14 is the most concise statement of the incarnation in the entire New Testament. Jesus took up flesh and dwelt among us. Wow. I mean, think about that a moment. The God of the universe comes down for us to dwell among us. My back gave out a week ago. It's killing me. I'm very cranky. Don't cross me. (laughs) And I'm reminded this week when I can't mow the lawn, I can't pick things up, I'm like, you know what? The Lord took on flesh, (laughs) dwelt among us. Known full well. This is a bummer. (laughs) What's the significance of this? This word who was there before time, who came and dwelt among us. The significance is, number one, the message is knowable. We can get our hands around this message. John says, I've touched him. (laughs) I've been there. I've wept with him. I've laughed with him. It's not some abstract concept. It's not a secret kept for those who know a particular handshake or who can crack the code. It's not for the elite or the social clique or a society, particular aspect of society. You don't need Google Translator or an interpreter. 
This one is knowable because as Hebrews 1 tells us, after God spoke long ago in various portions, in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets, in these last days he's spoken to us in a son. (laughs) That's our God. He is knowable. And with that comes a personal intimacy Our words, think about this, reveal to others what we think and how we feel. You know, the couple on a date, well, tell me how you really feel, right? They want the words spoken. Christ reveals to us the mind and heart of God. To know Jesus Christ is to know God. One theologian writes, In Jesus, his most personal word, God has spoken to us in the most human way possible, giving us his innermost thoughts and hearts in deeds that are as profound as his words, and the believing human race has experienced deep help ever since. John says, I know this word. I've touched him. I've heard him. (laughs) I've seen him. And you have the privilege of being brought into this if you know Jesus Christ as your savior. But not only the significance of Jesus being the word, it's knowable and personable, it's also exclusive. Remember Hebrews one, Jesus did not provide other means to know him. It's not gonna be through yoga. It's not gonna be through meditation. It's not gonna be through Allah. There's only means to God the Father, and that's through Christ. In that intimacy in the Godhead, he came down to dwell with us so that we could know him. Seeking life, seeking security for life beyond the grave is seeking to know God and to have community and that is only viable through Christ. Recently, I was ordering this book from a publisher and had done it before. They said, well, we hate to inform you, we no longer sell to individuals. If you want that particular book, you've got to go through this vendor in order to get the book. And that's a little like God the Father saying, if, if you want to know me, you've got to go through this vendor. That is Christ, which is also, we're one and the same. And I'm bringing you into this intimacy that you can know. And that leaves me with one other thought here with the word, and that is the message is unbelievably gracious, is it not? God sending his son and a son willing to come. Jesus entering time and space so that we can know and be brought into this fellowship. And John is just oozing in his latter years of life as he's ministering to these saints. He goes, I want you to know all this. Don't miss this. And again, it comes from someone who was intimately involved, who who understood because he was there from the beginning. John continues to elaborate on what is proclaimed because he said, notice in verse one, it's the word of life. And here, we're not talking about physical life. We're talking about, I would argue, spiritual life. Life is used 37 times in the Johannine writings, and in Psalm 36, for with you, O Lord, is the fountain of life. Life which is revealed by God in the historical person of Jesus. I wrote, eternal life is directly linked with this Jesus, and think about it, that's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Jesus serves as the source of life, as we see here. Jesus is the means into life. In John's gospel, he says, I am the door. (laughs) You can't get through apart from me. Jesus is the guide to life. I am the good shepherd. Jesus is the source of nourishment for eternal life. I am the bread of life. And he's the illumination of life. I am the light of the world. Eternal life, life that is real, is a gift from God. John 3.16, a familiar text, says, For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his only son. He communicated his word to us so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so John says, concerning this word of life, I'm writing so that you can have to this audience an understanding of the salvation you have in Jesus. And with that then comes this intimacy, this fellowship. Again, this is driving John's gospel. He's setting this up for what we're going to see in the next several chapters. Notice he says in verse 3, what we have, well, verse 2, he, he talks again about this life that's revealed that we testify, we announce. And then he repeats the seeing, the hearing, and the announcing in verse 3, tying this together, so that you may have fellowship with us. There it is. Fellowship, to, to have something that is common. Now notice how he packages this. This is, this is beautiful. He says that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. There's an underlying or there's a core to the whole concept of fellowship among the saints, among the church. It's found first in the Godhead. And that's what he's tying in here at the latter part of verse 3. I mean, think about this. Uh, John 17, the glory, this is Jesus speaking, the glory you gave to me, referring to the Father, I've given to them that they may be one just as we are one. This is the Lord, Jesus, talking to the Father. I and them and you and me. You, you catch this intimacy? And Jesus, I'm, I'm longing to bring them into this fellowship that we have, oh, Father that they would understand. When we trust Christ, according to 2 Peter 1, we become partakers of the divine nature. We are brought into this equation. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've been brought into the fellowship. And that's why that intimacy, what did Jesus say when he ascended into heaven to the disciples? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So this, this fellowship has been brought in, but it's not just vertical, it's also horizontal with one another. And this is, John understands this, and, and so when we get through this letter, as we, we journey through First John, he's going to talk about our, our walk with the Lord and the fellowship that we have there, but also our walk with one another. And John's clear, if, if you hate your brother, you can't love the Lord, because the two are tied. Well, think about Christian fellowship here for a minute and why John would be so excited about emphasizing they have fellowship with them. Christian fellowship finds a common bond in Christ, doesn't it? If you've been to the, a grocery store or out on a vacation and someone's helping you and you say, they gotta be a believer. There's just something about them. And you, you ask, do you know Jesus? Oh, yes. Uh, 
There's that common bond. Christian fellowship finds expression in corporate worship when we come together and sing. Christian fellowship finds deep and meaningful expression in mutual prayer. One scholar writes, there's an incalculable strength and comfort in the knowledge that one's burdens and cares are being carried to God in the prayers of those who share with us the fellowship of God's people. <laughs> John understands this. We have a common bond. And it's expressed in our worship. It's found in our mutual prayer. I wrote, Christian fellowship involves spiritual growth collectively in studying the word and sharing the truths. Christian fellowship comes through community, encouragement, exhortation. It's a cup of coffee. It's a, it's a lunch. Community entails sharing and caring and giving and thanking the Lord for one another. In other words, for the Christian, this belonging to Christ and serving as a member of the body of Christ, that is the church, is not merely subjective, it's an objective reality. And that fellowship is directly linked with Christ. It's, it's rooted in the relationship they have. And notice in verse four, John says, and I'm writing all this so that your joy may be complete. And I would argue the fellowship is directly linked with the joy. Verse four is not an afterthought of some, as some have argued. <laughs> It's not part of the original sentences of, sentence of verses one through three, but I think it is a follow-up. Because you have been brought into this fellowship, you know the joy. Karl Marx wrote, the first requisite for people's happiness is the, the removal of religion. To a certain extent, I agree with Karl Marx. Hold on. <laughs> We're not talking about religion. Mm -mm. We're talking about a relationship. A relationship with the Lord and the saints that Karl Marx never experienced or understood. That's, that's where it starts. It's this fellowship that we long for. If, if Karl Marx understood that, he would have stated the first requisite for people's happiness is a relationship with Christ. That's what he would have said. Sadly, he missed it. This is joy, and the joy here is a product of those who know Christ. It's not something we manufacture. It's a, it's a byproduct of our fellowship with the Lord. Psalm 16, in your presence, O Lord, in your fellowship, in, in being brought into this is what? It's fullness of joy. It's not that we have partially joy. Notice what John said, that, my, that our joy may be complete. By the way, you wonder, why didn't he say your joy? Why did he say our joy? Be because it's all together. It, it makes him excited to see what God is doing, and he knows what the joy that you're going to experience because we are all one in fellowship. And that's what's going to drive this letter as we see it. It's one of the major reasons he's writing. So they understand how to walk in fellowship with God and then how to walk in fellowship then with one another. And so that their joy might be full is, is not an expected climax. It, it's a realization. One person wrote, there can be no purer, nobler joy than that which springs from a conscious communion with the mind of God. 
His word admits us to the realities of a world undarkened by the shadows and undisturbed by the storms that trouble this. Rising through it is the heights of divine contemplation, the glory of the unseen, the eternal that surrounds us, and we drink of the river of the pleasures of God. So John is writing, and we're seeing as we journey into this letter, there's in a little box in your notes if you're following along or online, Four reasons I would argue John is pinning this letter. First of all, is to attack and expose the false teachers. We'll see this. It's to deal with, and with that comes the affirmation that Jesus did take on flesh. It's to assure believers of their salvation. Some have called this the book of assurance. That's certainly there. And the fourth is to appeal for spiritual fellowship. As we journey through this book, we're going to see these themes, these concepts that John is attempting to highlight, and I would argue reiterate in his gospel. So as we go to application, you say, well, thank you, Hoffaditz, that was interesting. I want you to think through John 15 before we leave and the application, how it ties together. John 15 is a very famous parable that Jesus gives. In fact, I'll read it to you. you. You know it, but it says, Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Don't miss that. <laughs> he takes away every branch that does not bear fruit in me. He prunes every branch that bears fruit so that it will bear more fruit. You are clean already because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. I will remain in you just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, so neither you can unless you remain in me. We used to sing as a kid, Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches, right? Because <clears throat> we're tied into the vine. And that parable drives First John big time. Think about it. Look at the application here. It's reiterating the notes we've just seen. God's message cannot be known apart from the word, or it can be known because of the word. Jesus. He's the true vine. I had a tomato bush recently that the whole limb was dying and the, the tomatoes were drying up. The rest of the plant looked great. I'm like, what in the world? I looked closely and the branch had broken off at the, down at the stem. The branch wasn't tapped in. There was no life being brought to that branch. So it died. Do you know this one Jesus has revealed? <laughs> the one who brings us life? The one who brings us intimacy and fellowship? This one who brings us joy? Do you know this Savior? Do you know this Jesus? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's so simple, so profound but very costly because it took Christ coming to earth and dwelling in, in flesh among us and dying on a cross for our sins so that we could have a relationship and be brought into this intimacy with the Father. And that leads us to the second point. Intimacy with the sovereign Lord is possible because of the word, Jesus Christ. John says it here in 1 John as well as in the parable we just heard that you abide in me and I abide in you. There's this, this union with the Lord that's so spectacular. 
And can you imagine a branch of my tomato plant saying, you know what, Mr. Stem, I've got it made. I don't need any more nutrients from you. We're going to do this on our own. We're just going to hang out. Oh, you say, that's ludicrous. That would never work. Exactly. The same concept here. We, we are brought into this fellowship that is vital with the Lord. Third, true fellowship with others is viable via the word Jesus Christ. In other words, this implies fellowship with God can really only be gained by joining in with those with Christ, in with the church. Christianity is not for lone rangers. Recently I heard someone said, well, I'm, I'm watching church online, that's, that's for me. I don't see that in First John. I don't see that in the, the vine and the branches. It, 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 it's getting dirty and growing together. And guess what? Yeah, we, no church is perfect. If it is, start one and let me know so we can all come. Of course, then we'll ruin it, but let me know. There is no perfect church. We've got warts. And part of growing together is sharpening each other and growing in fellowship. That's why we, we must be unified. After Jesus gives the parable of the vine and the branches, in verse 12, he says, my commandment is this, to love one another just as I have loved you. You can't separate them. Disunity or lack of fellowship with another saint is very, very serious. Serious because it affects the fellowship that you have with the Father and the Son. The cancer will spread. They're tied together. Now, don't get me wrong. John is going to make it very clear in 1 John. There are times to separate when it comes to orthodoxy, when it comes to garnishing the truth. It doesn't mean we place, and it doesn't mean we place ourselves in a, an abusive relationship. And, and naturally, we're going to gravitate towards some more than others. You know, they both like pickleball. We just hang out together. I don't know. I love chess. Whatever the issue is, there, there's those you're going to resonate, you work better with, but never should it foster disunity because of anger, bitterness, or an unwillingness to forgive. Our task is not to produce, by the way, fellowship with others. <laughs> That's the role of the Spirit. Our role is to preserve fellowship. And I didn't select this book for this period because I'm coming down on us as a community. You do a very good job of loving one another. Keep it up. And as we grow, if God so wills and we move to the new building, we want to continue that as a community that, that fosters fellowship, that, that understands what it means to not only be in Christ, but to be together serving our Lord. Can you imagine the Lord harboring ill will towards the Son, or the Son saying to the Father, I just need space, or gives the silent treatment? <laughs> no. It would harm the unity, the fellowship in the Trinity. And it's the same. Our sins harm the fellowship we have been graciously brought into. And so the conviction here, of course, is is there someone in your life that you hold a grudge or owe an apology? Remember that if our fellowship with others is hampered, then ultimately our fellowship with the Lord is hampered. 
Again, look at the text. So that you may have fellowship, verse 3, with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. They are directly linked together. And John is going to show that again, time and time again as we go through this letter. If you can't get along with others, then you got a real problem with the Lord. If you don't love the Lord, you can't love others. He's going to go back and forth through this whole thing in this letter. And then finally, as we see in John 15, as in relationship to 1 John, our joy is found in seeing others come to know the word, isn't it? Ryan, when he prayed, did not know that I was going to cite this text. But John 15 10 says at the end of the parable, the end of the vine and the branches, right? John says, you obey my commandments. You will remain in my love just as I've obeyed my father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you these things. Listen to what he says. So my joy may be you in you and your joy may be complete. Joy has its focus and its source in Christ and ultimately entering into this fellowship that he talks about is the reward of joy. You want to know joy? Know the Lord. Bask in his presence. In fact, I would argue the more you know of the Lord and understanding his grace, his mercy, his goodness, the more stable your joy will be so that when the earthquakes come or when the difficulties of life come, that joy is not going to waver because it's rooted in who God is and the fellowship you have in Christ. And John, as he writes this letter, he goes, I want you to have this fellowship, this genuineness of your faith. And you understand that? You can handle the false teachers, but you can also handle the difficulties of life that come. And understand, no, this is our God. This is who we serve, and we are intimately involved with him. And John says, I know, because I was there from the beginning. I've seen it, I've heard it, and I touched it. Wow. Father, we come to you. And Lord, we recognize that true joy comes only from you and the opportunity we have to fellowship with the saints. And Lord, I, I suspect this morning there are some individuals here this, today that have no idea what this is all about. This is so foreign to them. Lord, my prayer is that they would come to understand what it means to have Jesus, your son, as their savior. To, to enter into intimacy. And as the text says, that's simply done by confessing our sin and turning to Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And Father, I pray that you do that today. For those of us who know Christ, Lord, thank you for the glorious opportunity we have to enter into relationship with you. And as we journey through this little book, we're reminded of ways to foster, to continue in our growth in the spiritual life. And Father, that is our prayer. Lord, uh, the fellowship that comes, not only with you, but with the saints, and the joy that then flows out of that. Lord, we just thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name.